0: Grab a Bible this morning and find Psalm 117. In August and September, we're going to spend four weeks looking at Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms and the longest chapter in the Bible. It's going to take us about a month to work through it. This morning is a different story. We don't need a month for Psalm 117. It's only two verses. It's the shortest Psalm. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. And so we'll see how things go this morning, but I'm pretty confident we can make it through both verses this morning. We don't need a a carryover. Shortest Psalm, shortest chapter in the Bible. It does pack a pretty good punch. And uh, you'll see on on your outline that Martin Luther, he wrote a commentary on the book of Psalms, And he wrote 36 pages about Psalm 117. So there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. I don't have 36 pages of sermon notes this morning, so you can relax, but there is a lot here to discuss. As far as background goes, I want you to know that this is the fifth psalm in the Egyptian Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118 make up the Egyptian Hallel. And some of you may remember a few weeks back we looked at Psalm 115. And I told you that 115 was part of the Egyptian Hallel. This is a group of psalms, six psalms that were used to celebrate the Passover. They weren't written during the exodus as the people were leaving egypt they were written much later and probably while the people were in exile they were compiled together and they said these these six they go together we're going to put them together and they're going to help us celebrate sort of serve as a liturgy if you will to help us celebrate the passover and jewish tradition says that psalm 117 was probably the one that they sang or sung right before the passover meal One last thing I want you to understand, and we'll come back to this idea at the end, is that Paul quotes Psalm 117 and Romans 15 as he's talking about why the Gentiles should be brought into the church. These people who were once separated from God, cut off from his covenants, not part of the people of God, Paul says, based on what we're going to read in Psalm 117, he says they should be brought in. Not having to become Jews first, just coming by God's grace through faith in Christ, these people should be brought in to our churches. And that's important for a couple of reasons. It's important for one reason because it shows us how Paul understood and interpreted Psalm 117. So it gives us a few clues there. But even beyond just Paul, it shows us because we believe the same Spirit inspired the Old Testament and the New Testament. It shows us how God wants us to understand and interpret Psalm 117. And my point is this. When you see these Psalms quoted in the New Testament and referenced in the New Testament, it's just a reminder that however you read the book of Psalms, it has to fit with the whole Bible. However you interpret the book of Psalms, it has to fit with all of what the Bible says about anything. It all has to hold together because we believe the same God inspired all of it from beginning to end, so there's no contradictions, there's no mistakes, there's no things that we need to sort of uh, make fit. It all does fit, and our job is to see how it all fits together. So we're going to come back to that idea when we finish this morning. Look in your Bible. It's two short verses. We're going to read it. And then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump in. This is Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have sung this morning about you and the love that you've shown us at the cross. And we pray this morning that as we look at this short psalm, as we think about these two verses, that you would help us to understand the truth, that you would help us to see how it applies to our lives, and Father, that we would leave here with a greater appreciation and a greater wonder for your love and your faithfulness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. There is an outline, if you want to follow along, that's in the, uh, in the bulletin. This morning I want you to see two simple truths from Psalm 117 and then we're going to think about how these two truths apply to us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're going to end with that celebration in a few minutes. So here's the first truth, pretty straightforward. God commands all people and all peoples to worship him. All people and when I use the word people without the S on the end of it, I'm talking about every single individual on the planet. God demands that of every person. He calls every person that he has made in his image to worship him. When I use the word peoples with an S on it, I'm talking about groups of people, ethno-linguistic groups. Uh, mission strategists call these people, it's not really creative, people groups, groups of people. And the Bible is telling us all the way back in Psalm 117 that God wants every individual person to worship Him, but He also desires that all of the nations, all of the people groups, all of the ethnicities, all of the tribes, all of the races would worship Him as well. There's some great passages in the New Testament that talk about missions, right? I want you to understand, you could take all of those New Testament passages about missions, you could tear them out of your Bible, which I'm not suggesting you do, but you could. You could tear them out, and you could leave Psalm 117, and if you took it seriously, you would still be missionary minded. You would still be missions focused. Right. Think about some of these passages in the New Testament. Matthew 28 is the one we normally think of as the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Go do that. It's a clear mission statement of what we're supposed to go and do in making disciples. Mark summarizes the same idea by saying you're called to go and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Luke jumps into the conversation, Luke 24, and he says, I want you to go preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to every nation. In the Gospel of John, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you out into the world. Then you go into other passages in the New Testament. I don't think I put them on the screen, but I put them on your outline. You go to a passage like Romans 10. Romans 10, Paul lays out this chain, and it's unmistakable what he's trying to say. He says, no one is going to believe in Jesus and be saved if way on the back end, we don't send somebody out to preach the gospel. Those two things are connected, and you can't separate them. Paul says, you've got to send people out. You've got to go. You've got to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You can look at 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, Look, my mission is to become all things to all people so that by all means I might win some people to faith in Jesus. A great missionary passage. A great summary of what a missionary does. Acts 1.8, the story of the early church. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All these missionary passages, you know them, you've read them. Forget all of them for a second. Pretend they don't exist. I'm telling you, if all you had was Psalm 117, it would be enough for you and I to be missionary people. Look what it says. Praise the Lord, that's a command, all nations. Extol Him, another command, all peoples. Twice this Psalm is saying every person and every group of people on the earth is called, is commanded, is obligated to worship and praise and extol the one true God. And here's the reality. When you look around the world today, that's not happening. It's not happening in our city. It's not happening in our country. It's not happening around the world. People are worshiping. Don't get me wrong. Whether they realize it or not, people are worshiping. They're just worshiping everything and everyone and anything except the one true God. So you look around the world. There's plenty of people worshiping politicians. You and I are about to go into a season of life in this country where people are going to put their hope in a politician. You say, oh, but it's not worshiping. They're They're not bowing down to them or like saying prayers to those politicians. They're putting their hope and their security and their confidence in people. That's worship. You and I are going into a season where this is going to happen on this side and on this side, and it's going to be a back and forth volley of you should put your trust in us, you should put your trust in us, you should put your trust in us. I'm just telling you, you shouldn't trust any of them. You shouldn't put your hope in any of them. You look around the world, you see people worshiping all kinds of stuff, money, power, sex, relationships, other people. You know the list, I don't need to tick off everything. You look around this world, you look around our country, you look around our city and you say are all of the nations and all of the peoples are they praising God and extolling God? Is is a resounding no, they are not. Therefore, as people who worship God, our mission becomes we want the peoples to do what God has called them to do and we want God to receive what he alone is worthy to receive. Their worship And so if it's not happening, we need to go. You understand, this is why we go to Kenya. It's not because Kenya is just the funnest place you've ever been, although it's a fun place. We go because God has opened up a partnership for us to walk through in this ministry opportunity and to walk side by side with a group of pastors who are trying to make disciples of people in Kenya. And we believe God's called us to go there. That's the place where we have invested To go. Why? Because we want the peoples of Kenya to worship Jesus. We want them to do what Psalm 117 calls them to do to praise the Lord, all nations, and extol him, all peoples. You understand, this is why we spend months getting ready for vacation Bible school right here in our own town. Right? I mean, we spend months. Terry spends months, and our workers spend months, and they study and they decorate. Is it just because? This year's theme was so great, and we wanted the building to look like underwater, and it was so much fun, and nobody had anything better to do for that week during the morning. No. It's because we want people, children, families, and our community to hear the good news about Jesus and to praise God and to extol Him, just like Psalm 117 calls them to do it. This is why we send some of our men to prison. We don't send them there as prisoners, but we send them into prisons. They're going to be there in a couple of weeks. We'll have three guys there. And they're going to go into the prison right down the highway from us, and they're going in and giving their weekend and their time to tell these people the good news that Jesus Christ has died for you, and he's calling you to worship him and extol him and praise him. Psalm 117 applies to you, the prisoner. This is why at Emmanuel... We don't want to just entertain you. We want to equip you to share the truth. And so here's something we're going to do in the fall on Wednesday nights for adults. We're going to have a study called The Truth. Know it, believe it, share it, defend it. We want you, when you leave this room, to go out as missionary people to your homes, to your neighborhoods, to your jobs, equipped and prepared and competent to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you have people in your life that are never gonna listen to me preach a sermon. And if your hope is, I just gotta get them there so they can listen to the preacher, and then it'll be great, I'm just telling you, that's a bad plan. And it's not God's plan. God's plan is not that we just sit in this room and wait for everyone to show up. God's plan is that we come in this room, we worship together, we praise together, we learn together, we grow together, we love each other, then we go out and we share and we tell and we witness and we make disciples. That's your job. So on Wednesday nights, we're going to have a class and we're going to try to equip you and prepare you to do this very thing. This is why we give to missions offerings. Right? Christmas is rolling around, and in the Christmas season, we talk a whole lot about our world missions offering, and we want you to give, and we want you to make a sacrifice. We collect this offering all throughout the year. We have a lot of people that write checks every month, every week. They give a little bit throughout the whole year to world missions. At Vacation Bible School, the kids took up an offering. It's all going towards this world missions, but we're going to talk about it in December. Here's the great danger about taking a, a missions offering where you do most of the talking in December. December rolls around and you done spent all your money. Because Christmas is coming and vacations are coming and your kids needed school clothes and you just took a summer vacation. You're trying to pay that off and Christmas is rolling around and you're just trying to get to the next year. So I'm reminding you this morning, in December, I'm telling you right now in the summer, we're gonna take a missions offering. Uh, uh, Don't be surprised. We're gonna start talking about it. We're gonna show you some videos. We're gonna put it in the bulletin. We're gonna say, hey, we want you to give intentionally I don't want you to roll around December 20th and say well what do you think we ought to give to missions this year I want you to decide that right now and then I want your spending for the next six months to reflect the decision that you made today or previously we want you to give sacrificially meaning we want you to give so that we can send missionaries and we want you to make a sacrifice when you do that I tell you this all the time the people who go as missionaries are not the only ones called to make a sacrifice those of us who stay are called to make a sacrifice so that we can give and they can go so a sacrifice means you're going to give something up that otherwise you would buy or have so that you can give what you're going to give to this missions offering we want you to give generously and i thought about how do how do i explain what does it mean to give generously i think this is maybe what it means It means your unchurched family and friends, if they knew how much you gave, they would think you were foolish. What? You gave what to a missions offering? Do you know how many Christmas presents I could buy with that? Do you know how many vacations I could take with that? Be generous. Be intentional. Make a sacrifice. Not just because the preacher told you to, because Psalm 117 isn't happening when you look around the world today. You look at our city and our nation and the ends of the earth, and all of the nations and all of the peoples are not worshiping Jesus Christ. So we're going to make sacrifice. We're going to go. We're going to have VBSs. We're going to equip you to go out into your neighborhoods and your families and your workplaces, and we're going to give offerings so that we can send people to all of the nations and all the peoples. That's truth one. Here's truth number two. God's love and his faithfulness will prevail And endure forever. His love and his faithfulness will prevail and endure forever. There's something very common when you read through the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, and it's called Hebrew parallelism. And the Hebrews like to take two statements that meant basically the same thing, but they were worded a little bit differently and put them side by side just to help explain what they're trying to get across. So, for example, Jesus used this sort of uh, literary device when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? He's not saying my yoke is easy, that means one thing, and my burden is light, that means another thing. He's saying the same thing. He's just saying it two different ways to help you understand. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs do this over and over and over and over again. And you see it right here in verse 2. Great is his steadfast love toward us. That's the first phrase. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Those two phrases don't mean totally different things. They run side by side and they help you understand something that God's faithfulness will prevail And his love will prevail, and his faithfulness will endure, and his love will endure. These things will never change. You can bank on them. So look at this first phrase quickly. Great is his steadfast love toward us. Literally in the Hebrew, that phrase, when it's talking about his love, says that his love is strong toward us. Or, quite literally, it prevails over us. His love prevails over us over us. If you look other places in the Old Testament, Genesis 7:18, you read that the rain came down and the floods prevailed on the earth. They were strong. It was a force. It was something to be reckoned with. You can read a little bit later in Exodus 17:11. You remember when the Israelites were fighting Amalek, and God told Moses to hold his, hold his staff up, and as long as his staff was up, Israel was winning. But when his arm got tired and he put his arm down, Amalek was winning, and so they propped his arm up. Do you remember that story? That story literally says, Exodus 17, 11, when his hand was up, Israel was prevailing. Same word that you see in Psalm 117. Same word used to describe the flood. But When he put his arm down, Amalek was prevailing. And Psalm 117 is saying God's love will prevail in your life. And I think the best way to really wrap your mind around this is to flip back to the left. Look at Psalm 65, verse 3. Thinking about this word prevail, Psalm 65, 3. thinking about the floodwaters prevailing. You're thinking about an army prevailing. Thinking about God's love prevailing. Psalm 65.3 says, when iniquities, same word, prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You understand that left to yourself, your iniquities will prevail against you, right? We're clear on that? Apart from God's grace, you cannot beat Sin. You cannot conquer sin. You cannot deal with the separation that your sin has put between you and God. Your iniquities will prevail against you. But the hope that we have, Psalm 65.3, is that God will atone for our transgressions. God will make atonement. It's not Moses bringing this lamb. It's not Aaron bringing this goat. God will make atonement for our transgressions and then you turn back to psalm 117 and it says great is his steadfast love toward us his love will prevail in our life and you couple that with the rest of the verse that says the faithfulness of the lord endures forever his faithfulness endures forever the psalmist is telling you take it to the bank mark it down as certain don't ever question this god will keep his promises When he makes a promise to his people, he will keep it. You understand this is why when Israel was brought out into the wilderness and you read the book of Numbers and all they do is complain over and over and over and over again. This is why God didn't just blow them up. He talked about doing it, but over and over and over again he went back and he said, but I've made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and I'm going to keep those promises. You understand, this is why Israel was not destroyed when God sent them into exile as punishment for their sin. This is why a remnant was allowed to return and to survive and to come back because God knew, even though I'm punishing them, I've made a promise to David about a king who's going to come from his line, and I intend to keep that promise. He's faithful to keep his promises. If you want to get real personal and you want to just put Israel behind us, let's just put it this way. You understand the reason you are not destroyed right now, this very moment for your sin is that God is faithful to the promise that he made before the foundation of the world. When the Father and the Son made this covenant and the Son agreed, God the Son, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I'm going to lay it down for them. I'm going to die for them. And the father said, even though they're guilty, I'm going to accept that as payment. And they made this covenant, and there was this agreement. He's going to keep that promise. Jesus laid his life down for his people. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus laid his life down for you. And the father will keep his promise. I will accept that as payment in your life. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. So many Christians afraid, I've done something, I've said something, I've thought something that's going to put me outside of God's graces. What you're really saying is, I don't know if God's going to keep his promise or not. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, but when you question your security in God's grace, it's exactly what you're saying. I'm just not sure that he's going to keep his promise. And Psalm 117 is pretty clear. Great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So I told you earlier that however we think about Psalm 117, it needs to fit with what the rest of the Bible says. And I'll just give you one example of that. And I give you this example so that you understand Psalm 117, but also as you study the book of Psalms on your own, you understand one way that you need to test the book of Psalms against the rest of Scripture. Um, my first semester at seminary, when I started the Ph.D. program, I took a class. It was a required class called Evangelism and Postmodernism. And there was about 10 of us in the class. And we had to read this massive, long list of books. And some of the books were good books, and some of the books were not so good books. But a lot of the books we had to read were written by these really cool, hip pastors and they were doing these really cool hip things at their churches. And these cool hip things were getting them on the covers of cool hip magazines like this. And so here's two guys that I was assigned, okay? And I don't put these guys up on the screen to, to make fun of them, to poke fun of them, just to help you understand Psalm 117, what it means and it doesn't mean. So I had to read a book and do a, a presentation on uh, Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. Some of you probably read that book, have that book. And I had to do a review and a presentation on Rob Bell. He's over on the right on a book he wrote called Velvet Elvis. It just sounds cool, right? Velvet Elvis. You write a book like that, you got to be a cool, hip guy. So I read these two books. They're not really stunning works of academic writing, but they are what they are. And I read the books, and I do the presentation, and I say, Look, in these two books, I don't know that there's anything in here that's like totally heretical Uh, Maybe some irreverence and maybe a a few things I could disagree with here and there. But in my presentation, I said, towards the end, I wouldn't be surprised if both of these guys in the next five, ten years just walked away from everything. They just walk away from the truth. Now, I'm not a prophet, but I got that one right. Donald Miller hasn't really walked away from Jesus, at least he wouldn't say that. But by his own confession, a few years back, he said, I don't, I don't have any use for church anymore. I don't need church. And all of my friends who are really popular conference speakers, we don't, we don't go to church. We speak in churches, but we're not, we don't need to be part of a church anymore. I just don't have any use for that. And uh, I get my spiritual needs met by working at my marketing company. That's where I get all my spiritual needs met. And it's all good. I don't need the church anymore. So there you go. There's one guy. And then the guy on the right went even a step further, and he was a pastor up in Minnesota of a church called Mars Hill, and he resigned not too long ago. And uh, right before he resigned, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And in this book, Love Wins, Rob Bell tries to argue, look, God's love wins in the end. Nothing can beat it. It's the best. And in the end, God's love is going to get everybody into heaven. Everyone. Nothing can beat his love. It's the greatest. And just to be real honest, he looked at passages like Psalm 117 and he read it and he said, Look, it says right here that great is his steadfast love toward us. It prevails, it wins, it's strong, it's mighty, it's powerful. Nothing can beat it. His faithfulness endures forever. And so he writes this book and he brings up this very ancient heresy. He's not inventing anything new. This idea has been around for thousands and thousands of years, it will always be around. And he says, Look, in the end, everybody's going to go to heaven. You say, what if you don't hear about Jesus? Doesn't matter. You're going to get a chance to go. You're going to be there. You say, well, what if I heard about Jesus and I didn't want anything to do with him? In the end, God's love's going to win. He's going to beat you and you're going to be in there. You say, well, what if I don't want to go? God's love wins. We're all going. It wins. And he quotes verses just like this one. And I just want you to understand However you interpret this idea that God's love is strong and it will prevail in your life, you've got to make it fit with the rest of the Bible. You can't just take one verse out and say this is what it says and forget everything else the Bible says and act like you've come up with something new. Listen, the Bible also says, in addition to God being a loving God, that he's a holy God. In fact, the Bible says not one single time that God is love, 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 but it says twice, once in the old and once in the new, that he's holy, holy, holy. It's the most important attribute about God, not his love or his justice or his wrath, but his holiness. So you got to keep that in mind. And you've got to remember that the Bible has a lot to say. Jesus himself had a lot to say. This guy that we think of as bringing a message of love. Jesus had a lot to say about hell. And if you read Jesus at face value, it certainly sounded like he thought it was a real place where real people would spend eternity. I don't know how you get away from that. I also don't know how you get away from the fact that Psalm 117, this seems obvious to me, I know you're already thinking this, but Track with me. Psalm 117 is written for worship. It's written for believers. It's written for the covenant community of the people who rest and believe and live their lives based on the promises of God. So you understand when you look at Psalm 117 and it says, Great is his steadfast love toward us. Us doesn't mean every person who's ever lived on planet earth from the beginning of time to the end. Us means us. Those who are gathered to worship God and to rest in His promises and to celebrate what He's done for His people. That's the us. I hope you understand, and I hope you're beginning to see how Psalm 117 fits in as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. Because the Lord's Supper, in a lot of ways, is a celebration of the love that God has for His people. It's a celebration for us and by us, I don't mean anybody who just happened to stumble into the room this morning. I mean us, those of us who rest and believe and find our hope and our security in the promises of God and who He is and what He's done for His people. So here's a few thoughts about the Lord's Supper this morning. Number one, the Lord's Supper is an acknowledgment that we are called to worship. The Lord's Supper is an acknowledgment that we are called to worship. Coupled with that, it's a confession that our sin separates us from God. When we take of the cup and we take of the bread, we're saying, God, we know that we owe you worship. But we also know that we're sinners and we can't just come parading into your presence as if nothing has happened between us. And we acknowledge that the only way we can have a relationship with you and come into your presence is is if Jesus has died for us and taken our death and taken our penalty and taken our sin. We believe, like Peter said, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. We believe, like Peter says, that he shed his blood to ransom us and to purchase us. So we're confessing, God, you, you are worthy of our worship. We can't come on our own. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. We need Jesus Christ. And so that means it's also a celebration that God has demonstrated his love for us And that while we were sinners, Christ has died for us. It's a demonstration of God's love. So it's an acknowledgement that we're called to worship. It's a confession that our sin separates us from God. It's a celebration that God has demonstrated his love for us. And lastly, it's a celebration that God was faithful to the promises he made to Adam, to Abraham, to David, and to Isaiah he's faithful to his promises we've seen that in Psalm 117 and we remember it this morning he sent Jesus to crush the serpent he sent Jesus to bless all of the nations he sent Jesus to rule as the king and he sent Jesus to die as a suffering servant he made promises and his faithfulness endures forever he keeps his promises and we're acknowledging that this morning. So in just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are resting in what God has done for you through Christ. And we invite you to, to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. You're following Jesus. You've obeyed His command to be baptized. We'd love for you to participate with us this morning. Some of you may say, I'm, I'm not a follower. I don't know that I'm in the us. And I would just ask you to take a few minutes while we sing and while we pass out the Lord's Supper to reflect on what it would mean in your life, what would it look like in your life for you to become a follower of Jesus. So you bow, and we're gonna pray together. Father, we celebrate the fact this morning that you have love for your people that is powerful, that prevails in our life, We celebrate the fact that you are faithful to the promises that you have made and you will always be faithful to those promises. You sent Jesus just like you promised you would. Father, and you give us eternal life through Christ and we're safe and we're secure and we don't have to question, we don't have to be afraid. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, it is certainly not us coming before you displaying or showing our worthiness our goodness because we have none is simply a humble acknowledgement of our sin and a joyful celebration of what you have done for us through Christ so as we take of the bread and as we drink of the cup we pray that we would be mindful of the body of Christ that bore our sins on the tree and the blood of Christ which ransomed us from our foolish ways Father, we find our hope, we find our security, we find our purpose and our meaning and our joy in Christ and in Christ alone. And we pray in his name. Amen.